Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Literacy View. We have a very special guest with us today. Uh, some of you probably already know her, and uh, she is a very special person. Her name is Kate Mayer, and uh, Kate is a literacy advocate and co-founder of Everyone Reads Pennsylvania, a nonprofit organization with the mission to ensure that every educator and parent in Pennsylvania has the tools they need to help all students read to the best of their potential. And Kate was part of a research study that just came out uh, hot off the press, and it is called Community-Based Early Language and Literacy Screenings. And um, she is a co-author with um, Dr. Jacqueline Gobali. Am I saying that right? Galbali. Galbali and Mary Shepard. And uh, it's such an interesting article. I wanted to have Kate on to discuss it. So Kate, when we first met, you actually were one of the co-founders of a district organization that um, you know was promoting advocacy within your district. You had um, a child who struggled to read and um, you were looking to make change and now you're part of um, something bigger and uh, we want to hear about it. So before we get into the details of the article, maybe you could tell everyone about the organization and in particular what you're doing with screeners now. Okay, yeah. So thank you for having me, Judy and Faith. I very excited to be here. I am a fan of your show and have listened to many episodes. So awesome. I'm Thank very, you. very grateful that you've asked me to be here and honored um, to, to be part of this. We met Faith because I think it was 2018. I read your book. And at the same time, I was uh, actively working with a special education parent group in my school district in on the main line of Philadelphia to shift the way that reading was taught in our balanced literacy school district. And the reason I was doing that was because as an educator, I didn't learn how to teach reading. I, I really, I, I learned how to love literature and I lear learned how to make um, really uh, beautiful classrooms that, that were engaging, um, but I didn't learn how to teach kids to effectively read. And the only reason I knew that was because I had a child who ended up being dyslexic. And uh, that was uh, an emotionally um, fraught journey that we went on with my first of five kids. And by the time we met in 2018, we had figured out how to teach him to read, but I was so perplexed in my high achieving school district, I had been in two, one on the North shore of Chicago, and then one in, on the main line of Philadelphia, why we weren't using evidence-based practices. And while it was about dyslexia for me personally, as an educator, it was really about why didn't we learn how to teach reading? And that's what we, we, we really attempted to do. And we found your book and used it in our um, advocacy work with the district administrators. We took it to the office, we gave it to them, we hosted all these different oh, meetings. Honor, yeah, I, I know, I know, because we've had this conversation. And by the way, this is 
um, failing students or failing schools, that book. Yes. And, um, and you um, had gotten in touch with me when you read that book. And that's how we started to communicate. I didn't mean to cut you off. But yes, but it was an aha moment because, and at the same time, I think I had seen Heidi Bevering Curry's video from the Reading League that brought all this together as an educator and a parent and just really um, uh, helped to guide us in our work. But what happened was that the advocacy work that we did was not particularly effective or well-received. And um, when this, when the teachers union opposed a collaborative literacy committee that uh, one of the school board members was, was um, really charging and trying to, to, to support and, and bring to the district. When we had this happen, we just realized that no matter what we did, this change that we were pushing for was not going to happen this way. And so uh, subsequently, we, uh, many of us who were part of that initiative, partnered with Pam Kastner and Don Brookhart to bring the Reading League to Pennsylvania, because we thought this is a great way to use our time and to hopefully impact children. And during COVID, what happened was all these educators were getting so many great resources from the Reading League Pennsylvania, but parents and families were struggling. And so that's when we decided to uh, expand Everyone Reads to Everyone Reads Pennsylvania and focus on screening, advocacy, and education. And the screening initiatives um, really are a, a focus for us because now we know at least we have some evidence that they're impactful. Um, but they are um, things that we can do with volunteers. Um, they're not particularly resource heavy. We we don't have a lot of resources. We are a small organization uh, that runs solely on um, donations and, and volunteer time. Um, and so that's what we've been doing. In addition to doing these community-based early literacy screenings, we also do individual children. So when families come to us with concerns with older children or with children who might need more, we might need more information about diagnostically, we will do those screenings as well. And we have amazing um, volunteers who um, are reading specialists, um, you know, all sorts of different individuals. But I do want to share that Jackie Galbally, Dr. Galbally, um, who is the lead author on this study and one of the co-founders of Everyone Reads PA and the Reading League PA. She is a professor at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. Oh, nice, nice. Yes, and, and she has been running, I believe it's 12 years that her structured literacy program has been running. Um, and, and she's just an amazing um, uh, professional. She is an expert and she is my mentor. And she really um, was, was the founding teacher at AIM, which is part of AIM Institute. So I just have to give... She and Molly Shepard, the other co-author, um, just a shout out because they and, and Molly's official name is Mary. So I'm, oh, I'm, I, I thought yeah. maybe I had it wrong. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they're the they're these they're the smart people in this in this um, bunch. But I, I just um, that's kind of where we are. Um, and we're, um, again, look, always looking for resources to expand. But the, the, the screenings have been um, just, again, a really impactful um part of what we do. Okay, so Judy um, lives in Greenwich, Connecticut, by the way, and which is a very wealthy district. And these are the same issues that she and I have talked about numerous times. I'm on Long Island. Kate, you and I had conversations about that as well. So there are these 
you know, wealthy areas all over the place. And these issues occur all over. Judy, you see Kate is doing this type of work educating parents. Do you feel something like that is needed um, where you are? Do you think parents are knowledgeable? Do you think having screeners like this in your area would be helpful? These are screeners, of course, um, for early childhood. What do you think of that? So I almost want to uh, text Kate and say, hey, come fly down here or <laughs> let's get this going. I've been actually thinking of hosting parent workshops in my area because although I work with the most brilliant clients and uh, wonderful families, very often they don't really know. They figured that they moved to, you know, a semi-wealthy area with good schools, when you look up the ratings, the schools are high. And, and that seems to be, you know, initially the starting point. But then, you know, there many of them, their kids go to school. Um, some of the programs are still not aligned with the science and the research. And their kids are struggling. So behind the scenes, their children spend Friday with me after school or Saturday in the morning or Sunday in the afternoon because, you know, the school's programs, unfortunately, there's a lot of kids that even here are struggling. I mean, I work in some of the poorest schools as well, where there's kids struggling. I commute every day um, to the South Bronx. But um, the truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter where I am, and it doesn't matter which zip code I am, there's definitely kids struggling and parents that definitely aren't as informed as they should be. And very often, what I'm doing behind the scenes is texts texting them, especially after reading Faith's books, the kind of questions they should be asking the schools. And um, once, you know, parents start being more informed, everything changes sometimes for the for the kids. You know, maybe they're seen in reading. Maybe they're never seen in small group. All of a sudden they start getting seen in small group. Maybe they were using LLI, but the neuropsych report might have said to use an Orton-Gillingham-based program and then things start to shift. But, you know, I find it to be really unfortunate that parents, even though they care for their kids and love their kids, don't really know what to look for and ask for. And the only time they really start knowing is, unfortunately, when their kids run into problems, mm -hmm. That's... which is what me and Faith or you. Yeah. yeah I mean, and, and I, I think that it's such a complex issue because it looks different from the outside right in, in different um in different areas in different types of schools but the problem while the problems outside might be different within the school i mean what we find is that if we educate parents if they see a reading screener and we talk about phonological awareness if we talk about um the importance of of decoding, um, you know, sound by sound in the beginning. If we talk about not guessing at words, not memorizing all the sight words, and and they have this this knowledge when they walk into the classroom, when they hear a teacher say, "Oh, Mrs. Johnson, Susie, she'll catch up. Don't worry about it. We see this all the time. She's young for her grade, or whatever it is." And I, I'm guilty of having said that. So this is not a 
this is not a teacher problem, right? This is this is a systems problem for all of us. And when parents get this information and understand it and can ask the questions, then they also can start to find out what's already happening in the schools. Because I think this one, one word that was phrase that we use, it's called data cloaking. So you guys are probably in similar districts where screeners are happening. You know, they're, they're are happening. It's screener yeah. time right now. Kate, I had to uh, contribute to my family newsletter tonight, reminders about screeners, wishing everybody, you know, good luck, because I know that, you know, it's the middle of the year benchmarks, right? We're going to see what's happening. Is the instruction working for those kids? Is it not working? And I know a lot of schools are going to get their screener data in now, and they still have a lot of work to do because if the application piece isn't happening and kids aren't getting enough time to practice reading, guess what? Right. And and they wow. might not even be sharing it. Like that's the piece we found. We that's found, right. yeah, right. we found like, so we were using Acadians initially. We now use Ames Web just because of cost and all these different things. But okay. we, would, we would say to parents, we knew this from our own personal experience as parents, an Acadians report would be recreated and <laughs> sent to parents late, like mm-hmm. not really far out. And it wouldn't have percentiles. It wouldn't have graphs. It wouldn't mm-hmm. have all the things that we know from, from the MTS system. And, and RTI research is really important um, to look at progress and understand. Why didn't it have that though? I know that they have a family letter now that I see that's pretty descriptive. No, Acadians had the family letter. Yeah. But the school districts recreate Mm -hmm. or choose what to share. And many times they don't even share it. They might write it in an email. And and the reason is because, well, I shouldn't shouldn't give the reason of school districts. But what we infer from that is that when you're given information, particularly and this is if you're if you understand this stuff, because not every parent does. But if you're given percentiles and you see graphs that go like this instead of like this or like this, you you can make many more conclusions from that as a parent um, that might align with your um, what you feel about your child. Right. Because often parents have concerns and they trust, like you said. We trust that we move to this place that has the the number one or what whatever the whatever it is, um, and then they just waste time. And that's that dyslexia paradox where we want to catch kids early, mm-hmm. intervene wherever we can. We don't care if it's at school. We we just want kids to get what they they need in word reading and oral language, right? <laughs> so that's um, why I wrote. If only I would have known, because that's what parents literally was saying to me mm-hmm. right after they understood what this was all about while they would cry you know through tears they were saying if they only had this information if they only understood what was going on and i realized after i wrote failing students or failing schools i needed to take a step back and try to reach parents before they were in this mess, hopefully trying to prevent some of these problems. That was the whole reason for that book. So Kate, in looking at um, the article, Mm -hmm. you use the early bird screener. Yes. Tell people what that is, explain a little bit about why that was chosen and how you feel this is helpful for parents. 
Okay, so I'm going to give you kind of the backstory. We, we, our organization fell into the opportunity to support the launch of a kindergarten at a YMCA. We were asked to help them with their literacy program. Um, And when that happened, we were kind of a little late. They had already chosen their curriculum, which was super kids. That was the choice they made on their own. Um, But we were asked to um, train their staff, um, which were very young, only one one teacher, not even with a certification because they didn't pass their praxis at that time. Um, and then two aides, a director and another employee. So we were asked to train them and help them with their intervention. And when we were given that task, Early Bird had just come out. And I was familiar with Early Bird because I had been working at AIM Institute and we had kind of been in, they had been in touch and whatever. So one of the things we realized was that um, with the staff who were all going through AIM Pathways, we had provided that training, they were so new and and um, did not have any of this information. We needed a screener that they could easily implement and that would make sense to them. And this just was a good fit. And um, I will say that for the kindergarten, we also did Acadians, but that was, that was by our choice um, so that we could kind of, you know, um, make sure that it was all lining up basically. But what happened was immediately when we started using the early bird, we saw how easy it was to administer. The early bird is an app. It's a game-based app that was created by Nadine Gab. And I think it's Yaka Fletcher. Is that right? Am I saying that um, out of- probably. Yes. And and, um, they developed it with- um, I think Boston's Children's Hospital, um, and it, it's it's a company. It's a for-profit company now, but they they made this amazing product that is game-based and not really. Um, it doesn't require a lot of adult interaction to effectively um, administer it, and the kids enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And so um, we we started doing it, and and the beautiful thing about it was it also looked at oral language. And um, not just at phonemic awareness, um, RAN, which was another one that's not often part of a general battery, um, letter naming, letter sound. Um, well, and just it- for everyone listening, I don't know if everybody knows what RAN is. So that is rapid automatized naming. Yes. And that is uh, something that is looked at that is predictive in terms of whether kids will have later problems reading. So I just yes. want to put that and, out. And, and such an important piece. And it was so great to have all that information. And what I would say that the most, um, I think the most surprising piece was that oral language piece because mm-hmm. um, we, we all knew how important that was. Um, but what we had been finding out in our individual advocacy cases was that we were getting kids older who had DLD, developmental language disorder, um, that was only identified by private practitioners, private speech and language um, practitioners, and had not been teased out in, in public schools um, mm-hmm. because the kids seemed typical. Um, and so that piece was really impactful. And, and particularly when we looked at our kindergarten class, where we had several kids who didn't seemingly have oral language issues, but showed up um, as having red flags. So we chose that because of the ease of application the research behind it um, and, and the, the people who created it, um, you know, the, um, Jackie Gabelli um, re- looked at the um, 
what is it called? The guide that the the thing that you write when you create something, it's the research guide. And I can't remember the name, Um, but she went through that and we, we, we we decided that it was a really effective um, tool. The other piece was that we realized we could get out into the community really quickly with it. And we didn't need a lot of resources and we could do it with volunteers. And so um, it was just, it was kind of just a timing thing where we needed something and and then we saw how we could use it to extend our mission um, in a way that was um, viable for us as an organization that did not have a lot of resources, um, either monetarily or people-wise. So this is fascinating. Judy, as you mentioned, you work um, in the South Bronx and, you know, Kate, I believe Kate was doing this in a suburban community. At least that's what the article said. Basically, it was in a suburban area. Don't you think something like this, if it's that easy to kind of um, get people to administer this with not too much difficulty, couldn't this be something that maybe in your area where you work, that this could be something that is a possibility to help where it could work with the school district to kind of. I'm trying to think. So let me, let me work this out in my brain a little bit. So right now schools are doing this, right? But. Schools are seeing, but not this. Schools do use early bird. I mean, I mean, that's their primary um, market are schools. Um, I think. I think ideally it would be in like doctor's offices, you know, like there would be other places and our, our model of community-based uh, delivery um, kind of jumps in front of that school piece so that parents have access to the data, um, you know, uh, separate from schools. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, so that's really interesting. A lot of the schools in New York city, I think they're piloting now and making them into community schools so that it looks like it has more of like that community as the, the school I'm working in faith now is turning into is a community school. Really? So let, explain to everybody because not everybody knows no, what that means, a community school. I'm a little new to it. So I don't know as much as I probably should, but I know like there's a clinic downstairs, like there's like a full doctor's office downstairs. You could get medical treatment downstairs, um, eyeglasses, all of that, you know, one-stop shopping for care for your your entire family. And I don't think you even need to attend the school to receive services yeah. in that school. So I am familiar with it because with my work, um, my other life, um, we worked with this a little bit. A lot of places have piloted the community. Oh, and I definitely idea. see more specialized programs. Like one of the buildings that I work in has um, a program called the Horizon Program, which is an amazing, amazing program for uh, children on the spectrum. And I have never seen such a fabulous, wonderful program where their needs, uh, students' needs are being met and students are getting so much care, love and attention and, you know, so many hands-on experiences and and paras and so forth. So I definitely see very positive things. So I just and, want to just, I want to just jump okay, in just to clear up. Yeah. So for anybody listening, um, community schools, if you think about wraparound medical care, this is almost like a wraparound program so that for families, 
they get help sometimes um, if they don't speak English or English is a new language. It helps parents get services. It helps with getting medical services. It's really trying to nurture the family in the community so they're not hanging out there by themselves. And uh, it's a wonderful idea, especially in school districts where, um, you know, you have parents who might be, um, you know, struggling financially and uh, socially and emotionally. It really kind of supports families. So that's what community schools um, have been. Uh, and hopefully there are more coming along. Yeah. So did you want to say so, so how would that be different getting these early bird screeners than getting the screeners in the school? How would that look different? And would it be like possibly a way to see the screener scores faster, have easier access to it, cross check if it matches the school screening? How would that all work together? So, Kate, have you collaborated with the local schools about your findings from the so screeners that you've used? Is there collaboration? Well, there's definitely collaboration. So we are focused on individual kids, right? Because remember, we started trying to focus on systems and it wasn't effective. And so um, we do have families who are not in suburban areas who participate in our screenings. So we we have those experiences as well, less because of access. Um, we don't advertise. Um, Trey is is a is a someone who feeds us people, Faith, um, who you know. Um, oh, Trey Hadrick. So oh yeah. good. So yeah. he has his own nonprofit, Lit Champs, that he just started. And I've worked with Trey on um uh, helping in uh, with his barbershop initiative. So that's wonderful that you two have been um, talking. Yeah, well, because what happens is, so, so we do collaborate with districts. Here's how it happens. We, when we have individual students who show any student who does our screeners, whether they're doing our early bird screening initiative or they're doing individual student screenings that might be more diagnostic, we always have education sessions. That's a really big piece of, of what we do. We, we do not hand data to families without giving them some quick um, education. So we do like a 30-minute session um, for the early bird that gets digs into just a little bit about evidence-based instruction, the science of reading, if we use that term, um, the theoretical models kind of very basically. Um, one thing we talk about a lot is uh, is Nancy Young's ladder of reading because that helps parents kind of um, gives them a framework to think about instruction in schools and what their kids might need. Um, and then we review the early bird screener itself. And, and it's beautiful because um, the report um, we actually create our only our own early bird report. We don't use their parent report because we want to give a little more detail um, than what they provide. Um, but it aligns to um, uh, Scarborough's reading room. So we can have that basic conversation and then we can pull the report, show it to parents and say, here's the phon phon phonological awareness um, section. These are the scores. This is what it means. And, this is and then we can talk a little bit about what they can do at home. Mm -hmm. But... When we get kids who have, uh, who are showing risk, um, and it might not be a kid whose dyslexia flag pops, we might say, "Well, 
Susie has risk here, here, and here. We see some deficits, some some, some areas where we want to just keep an eye. Here's what you can do at home. Um, but if we do get a lot of risk that shows who this is someone we got to jump on now, we would help the parent advocate at the district, uh, at their school level. And we, we provide um, guidance on how to do that. And then sometimes we go to meetings. And that's where we work collaboratively with schools. Um, they don't always like to take outside data. However, um, when we have data that shows that there's need and the parents are asking questions, we can help the parents to have that conversation. Um, or even like you said, you guys were texting parents questions to ask. We can we can even provide them the questions to ask so that they can go in informed. Um, and so that's how we do it. Districts and schools, um, we have one district who really is amazing. And what I would say is that lower, this is experience, experience this is not research-based, but in our experience, lower performing school districts have more staff in these meetings who, who understand the research and evidence-based practices, and they're more apt to collaborate. And they ask for support or what we recommend or what resources we have. We also partner with another nonprofit called Reading Aloud, um, which is Philadelphia-based, and they provide no-cost or low-cost sliding scale um, structured literacy tutors. Mm -hmm. um, to families. So we can get families tutors, but they also provide those tutors in schools. So you might, a lot of times we run into cases where we're in a school and they're making a shift, right? They might still be doing FMP um, benchmarking, but they brought a cadence in and they're looking at changing their curriculum. They're still doing LLI for intervention and they don't have an early kind of intervention program that would be a appropriate for these children, or um, they might not have an MTSS system that's um, completely in place. Then we can say, hey, well, we could connect you with Reading Aloud, or hey, here's Reading Ready. This is a great curriculum. This is a great evidence-based curriculum that you guys could use, you know, like that kind of stuff. And that's how we collaborate. And I, I just listened to your interview with with Kata, um, and I heard I was listening about the, the curriculum talk, you know, and and one of the things we find we have volunteer advocates who go into the schools. Unfortunately, we have to recommend programs. It's a bummer because we don't educators don't have the deep knowledge that we need to effectively diagnostically and prescriptively with, you know, using structured literacy to address all the needs of students because it's hard and it requires a lot of work to get there. Mm -hmm. um, so. You know, we can hand programs and say, please try this. Um, you know, we, we do have to ask for, for certified Wilson tutors or cert certified Orton-Gillingham practitioners, because then we know um, for that specific kid who needs that or who might need that, that they at least have that training. Where we run into really big problems are on the oral language piece, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we have a kid with a DLD profile, um, that's a hard thing. And, and I know Tiffany Hogan um, is working on that. And there are some recently recommended programs there. And, and it's not, it's not the answer, but one kid at a time, 
We want to make sure that we can get as much as we can in school for them and that that they're not coming to you, Faith, or to you, Judy, after school, because the emotional impact. You're trying to kill our business? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm there's kidding. not enough I of you, right? I've done a lot to kill my own business. I know. I know. I try to educate parents, but um, I'm really kidding. Um, so listen, you said a lot right now. So let's just back sure. it up a bit. So one thing you said is that, um, you know, you need to mention programs in particular. And I think programs inform instruction. Mm-hmm. All right. It, once you see a good structure, a model, then it's it almost teaches you what you should be looking for. So I'm not against that. I don't think Judy would be against that either. It's just the idea that you know, you need both. You need an educated teacher, somebody who's knowledgeable, and then you're able to choose and, you know, what you should be using rather than just a canned program that, okay, we have Wilson, let's do this, even if it's not the right program. All right. That was number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, I think, and I'm going to turn this over to Judy for a moment. You also said that you feel that districts that are either low performing or maybe they don't have as much money, they have more teachers there and they are more open to the help. And here, and I would agree with that. I would agree with that because I think that like the district that you started your advocacy work in, um, Kate, There's no reason for them to change. If they do well on paper, in a newspaper, why do they have to learn anything new? They're doing just fine. It must just be those few kids. And, you you know, they don't want to change all, all of this because it's only a few kids. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, all these kids are going out for tutoring and they're going to me. They're going to someone like Judy. Um, And then it doesn't reflect, the district doesn't really reflect that there's a need to change. So Judy, how, think about that, how do we push in districts that appear really good on paper, right, like these high-performing, wealthy school districts that look good on paper, and yet they're not really open to change because they feel they they don't have to. What do you think about that? How do we get them to do it? How how do we make I we can't force them, but how do like how do we get them to even listen that maybe that there's a well, well one thing that has to happen is the parents have that are getting help from people like you or I have to become more active and more vocal, right? There's no shame that their kids need extra help. It's shame on the schools, not shame on their kid. And um, I know, unfortunately, you know, some, some schools will try to try to say, Oh, we have great data. We, we don't have to shift our curriculum now. Right. Because a lot of schools are going to be quote unquote forced to change it because of legislations and stuff. And I think a lot of them are so tied and connected to these programs as their identity. But, you know, we can't say that every child is not important. And also, we know, the research tells us 
that structured literacy doesn't just help those kids that are underperforming, but it's beneficial for all of our readers. And I know that a lot of our readers, even some that I helped in my past, could have been much better readers if I had had more of a structured literacy approach and taught them how to decode really, really well with the new knowledge that I gained seven years ago. Um, I think that's really, really important. And um, I know you probably have more ideas, Faith, as well, right? Well, I think what Kate said before, how, you know, she felt that her group was not effective because the teachers union came in and, um, you know, they were spinning their wheels. Kate, would you, now that you're in this position, mm -hmm. would you rethink, would you have done I bet differently? I don't want to about this is important to think about because faith i can guarantee you there are going to be so many people and so many schools trying to get waivers not to change their curriculum i guarantee you i guarantee you we're going to see a storm of schools doing monkey business or saying this and saying that and and who knows who knows or, or what i could tell you happens here on long island they take what they know and then they, as you said, Kate, they rewrite the script to make it comfortable. And so they call it a comprehensive literacy plan that waters down what we know is the effective part, but it they use sound bites and slogans to make it seem like they're doing something really different, but it's not very different at all. Your thoughts, Kate, what, what are some things that you've learned along the way? It's really hard and it's hard to talk about high achieving wealthy districts because we have so many districts where um, kids in large scale are not getting what they need. But what I what I see when I'm in those places is that the teachers are working just as hard or harder um, and trying to learn as much as they can to implement structured literacy. And so my, and this again is feeling probably experiential, but in my experience in high achieving districts, families focus on their children. They can be social justice warriors by name. They can have um, great intentions, but in the end, it's about their kid, getting the, their kid the help they need, not impacting the um, the perception of where they live. Um, and um, and there's a lot of stuff that happens politically within these systems. Um, and 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 they're not doing everything wrong. They have good teachers. Mm -hmm. They don't understand structured literacy. So there are kids like Faith. Your word, dysteia. I know that that was you. That's your word. That is so true. I I'm gonna give my my personal experience with my own children because I have five. <laughs> I have a 17 year old. And I have two seven-year-old twins. My oldest child um, went through school, uh, the early part of his schooling on the North Shore of Chicago in a fabulous school district where Lucy Calkins was, was God. And um, he is bright and he effectively was able to mask his word reading difficulties with memorization and, and his intellect. Mm -hmm. And um, the emotional impact was extreme. Okay. So we had to deal with that. We, we've, we dealt with that. His brother, who's seven, 
who um, has had structured literacy in a general education setting since before kindergarten, right? Pre-K, kindergarten, first and second grade has the exact same profile. I know this. They're my children. I look at the data. His name is Jack. Jack will never have a dis- will never be identified as being dyslexic. If Jack had to memorize every single word through second grade to read, he would be identified as dyslexic. And and Jack doesn't go to my local public school. Jack goes to a very expensive private school where structured literacy is part of the and and intervention RTI where an effective intervention system is in place with screening and progress monitoring and and differentiated instruction diagnostic and prescriptive instruction and so <clears throat> that's a long that's a long time between those two kids right there's been a lot of change um i have students in the school district who have done our screeners who are the same age as jack we have advocated for those students within the same school district and others locally. And I'll, I'll give an example from, from a neighboring district. Um, you were talking about programs. I have a, a child in first grade screened, screened on early bird. Parents knew that there was an issue. Um, he does not need Wilson or Orton Gillingham. He has a learning disability. It's identified. He needs lots of repetition. Right. Mm -hmm. He needs the same thing that he's getting with his foundations in his general education classroom from the great teacher. But he needs it much more, much more repetitions, lots of practice so that he can solidify those skills. The frustration that he's feeling going from foundations to LLI to a hybrid structured literacy because they don't understand that the teacher's trying um, is immense. And so when I think about what do high achieving districts have to do, how do we get them to move the needle? I do think legislation helps. We don't have legislation. We have structured literacy competencies. Again, Pam Kastner is our head of literacy for the state of Pennsylvania. We have awesome resources. We have these competencies. No funding. No training of leaders. School leaders have to be on board. Uh, they have to understand Without that, you have teachers operating in silos. You have teachers who want, we sit in meetings with teachers tapping us under the table saying, send us what we can do in our classroom. You know, like, and at the same time with the admin or the special ed directors, um, just making sure that on paper, whatever they're doing looks okay. Um, and and so, I, I mean, I don't know the answer, but what I would say is instructional equity should be the focus. Mm -hmm. and instructional equity for all students within a school district. In high achieving districts, you have the, the, the 200 kids who are, a, whatever, the AP scores, the National Honor Society, like National Merit Scholars, all of that. But then you have these kids in the middle who don't, have not gotten the same access. They might be tutoring through things, whatever. But if staff focuses on instructional equity, that's going to, that's going to propel this them to kind of to make changes systemically, um, I think. Um, but I have not I have been in districts where equity is a conversation. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um you look at their data, you look at the the, op, the the difference between kids of color and 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 their counterparts, special education students, and that's not the story that you see. Instructional mm -hmm. equity is not the focus. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Mitchell Brookins um is is a 
a, a colleague. We, we, we are um, moderators on the science of reading, what I learned in college, what I should have learned in college board. And I had a conversation with him about a student within a district, a high achieving district who was an African-American student, um, low income African-American student. And that child was in third grade and had, I had one of those charts I told you about, Judy, where like it's the Acadians data but it's not on an Acadian's chart. And I had the second and third grade data. And that child started uh, second grade reading four words a minute. Middle of the year, seven words a minute. Oh. End of the year, seven words a minute. Then for, for third grade at seven words a minute. So effectively no growth at all whatsoever. And I would I, say that is actually going back. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And I said, Mitchell, what do I do? How do I, I know that they're not giving this child what the other children are getting. I can see, I can see a white kid's IEP that's 65 pages. And I can see this child's IEP that's 20 pages. Parent has a language deficit, but not, not, not that they don't speak a different language. They have an, a, like an oral language deficit. And he said, find another place for them. You're not going to fix that. Like, you know, I, there's nothing I can do about that. I can't. And that's, that's in a district where my kid or your kid might get at least something that like better, right. We're moving towards something, but because the person, the parent didn't know what to ask for. They didn't, they knew to say, my kid's not reading. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They keep saying this, they keep saying that they're reading. They keep saying so I, I mean, if I knew the answer, I would be dancing <laughs> from the, from, I would be hanging from the chandelier screaming about it. But I really, um, this is, this is the conundrum we run into every day, which is why we focus on one kid at a time and hoping to empower families. Yeah. Kate, do you guys progress monitor the kids as well that you, um, screen? Well, so we try it's different. It's all kids. Are, it's very different. We have kids as young as preschool because now early bird is pre-K, K first. And I think second just started right now, but I have to go in and look at my app. Um, so we will take any of those kids on early bird. And then what we do is typically if we have older kids, like, like first graders or second graders who come to us and the parents talk to us, we'll look at their data from school. We then do continue to screen them doing benchmarking, beginning, middle, and end. It's getting to them, right? And we have to have volunteers go out and do that. Um, uh, but we also send them to reading aloud. And reading aloud does progress monitoring. But I would say that it's not uncommon. It's more uncommon that districts are not progress monitoring these kids. Like most kids have an oral reading fluency progress monitoring going on. They just aren't looking at it or they don't know what to do with it. They're not adjusting instruction. I'm seeing, I'm seeing in the city schools a lot of benchmarking, not as much progress monitoring yet. A lot yeah. of schools are getting their feet wet with just making sure that they're benchmarking. And, and I think it's a real lost opportunity when we're not progress monitoring the schools because then we're not, you know, continuously setting bite-sized goals to, you know, keep things moving and keep kids progressing. It's kind of hard to get all the systems and structures working in place and making sure that, you know, that the RTI MTSS system is functioning to capacity of, you know, helping achieve high outcomes. It's not really that easy. And, and, and you know, it's, it's just frustrating because it seems like there should be like, 
almost like a magic formula of success. Why is it so hard for so many different schools and so many different, you know, states to come up with this formula of success? Shouldn't their faith be like a formula of success? Well, you know, I think that we we know we we have all the components. We know what works. The the magic is getting all the people on board to know and want to do what they're supposed to do. That would be, you know, if I could wave my magic wand, that's what we need is to really get people all moving in the same direction but and all willing. Why happening? Like, why does it seem so complicated? Like, why is every school struggling in its own way to get things moving? Why, Faith? Even with, I could still foresee issues in schools, even with common curriculum, even with mandated curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the mandates are a start for some, but again, it really is this long-term commitment to saying we need to get knowledgeable about this. And like you said, Judy, the progress monitoring is a very important piece and understanding what it looks like and what to do with it. You know, when I was looking at this article, um, it sounds, Kate, like the parents knew from a very early age that there was something not right in their kids. But once you did this early screening, their concerns were validated. And that to me is what I found without any of this, that Mm -hmm. parents always know. They really do. But the schools kind of poo-poo it. And and I don't mean they do this on purpose, but they really, as you said, they either don't understand or um, they truly think kids will outgrow some of these things and not to worry so much. Um, But the parents, when I talk to parents, I just spoke to a mother recently. I did an assessment on her twin girls and she told me she knew from preschool that there was something not right. And she said, people try It's not like they weren't giving her things, but they weren't necessarily giving her the right things. And they weren't giving her maybe all the supports that were necessary. So, you know, I don't think there's an easy answer for that. But I did want to ask you, Kate, in the article, it mentioned parent involvement versus parent engagement. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that is something that I think is very profound because and this i think honestly is is a bigger problem in um high achieving districts where parents are supposed to be involved and they're they're held at arm's length and and what parent involvement means is that the school is guiding what that is Mm -hmm. and parent engagement is is taking what the parents have to offer to support their children and 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 using that um, to to co- collaborate and and effectively um, work with the child. And so um, I think we know in ESSA ESSA of twenty fifteen, parent engagement was was mandated or put into that that uh, law. Um, but you guys have seen, I'm sure, Title One 
meetings where they have to have these parent engagement meetings where you go to the meetings and parents have a presentation and they get some books to read to their kid. They're told you have to read, you have to, you know, like the same. And, and really for failing kids, kids who are struggling, what happens is they get shamed. I, I mean, I have our president of our, of our organization. Her name is Kate Murphy. She's an amazing woman. I met her because she was on the school board in my school district. She was the um, superintendent's um, student when she was in AP history. He wrote her um, her school her college you know recommendation. She thought she had drunk the Kool Aid. The district's the best. She lived there, um, and it wasn't until um, she started talking to us to learn. And we, it takes a lot to educate non-educators about this stuff, right? It's a lot. And so we were educating her and she was like, wait, what about my kid? And she said for her youngest, they were like, oh, he'll pop. Don't worry. I think at the time he was in first or second grade. And it wasn't until we educated her that she subsequently found out her older daughter was dyslexic, had been getting in, you know, instruction on the side, but that that parent um, involvement piece where they're like, Hey, Mrs. Murphy, your son, you should just be reading to him. Not like, what do you, what do you have to tell us about him? What are you noticing at home? What, you know, here's some, let's call out what, you know, so, so that I do think that that is super important. It looks different depending on your situation as a parent and schools should be able to understand that. Um, We blame parents all the time. We blame poor parents. We blame parents with with addiction problems. Like we, we blame them all the time, but I have never met a parent no matter what their circumstance is, who didn't want their child to read and didn't want them to do well in school. And they can't, not every parent, I I have to be honest, seven-year-old twins, one is dyslexic and has DLD and is at AIM. The other one is the one I told you about. Um, I can't do all the homework. Like I'm developing their oral language. I'm reading aloud. I'm like, but to sit down and do all of that. And I am an educator. Like it's, it's a lot. So um, I Thank think you for being honest, Kate. Yeah, I mean, I and I think parent engagement means where can we meet the parent? How can we inform them about their child? What can they effectively do, and how can we support that? And how can what they know about their child inform us as educators? Mm-hmm. And I think there was a study, and I I I read it, and I don't remember the name of it, but I jotted it down because I knew you were going to ask about this. It was out of um, I think. Ontario, it was in 2023, and they um, looked at parents' um, perceptions of their children and then word reading scores. And there was a direct, there was, it says, parental concern is an accurate screener for reading difficulty. So like the parent concern, and that's what we find. We don't get kindergarten parents coming to us who aren't worried about their kids. Mm-hmm. They're not yeah. going to get a screener unless they have a sibling who's older, who struggled. That is so true, Kate. Um, I'm working with a family and you know what? Parents very often, they feel it in their gut. They know that something is not going well. And it's funny because the screener in kindergarten um, only really looks at a couple of things on Acadians. It looks at decoding nonsense words, uh, letter identification, some phoneme segmentation or blending. 
but parents could still feel, even if they are not expert at all those skills, they could still feel it. And I can tell you, and uh, Faith, I'm definitely not tooting my own horn today at all. You should. <laughs> I can, no, I'm not. But I'm, you know, I, I became a believer in structured literacy because it's so funny. Um, a little guy that I was worried about, um, structured literacy approach, using the books that Faith recommended, the ones that are read with uh, the Tin Man and all of those. Oh, yeah, the primary phonic ones. Oh, primary phonics, six yeah. sessions later, yeah, child is reading those books. Yeah. And making those sounds. And all of a sudden, this kid that the family was really, really worried about, they're no longer, we're not really worried. Because now it's middle of kindergarten. And that child that was definitely a red flag based on Acadians, because that child is getting practice, because that child is getting the right tools, it makes a world of difference. But, it you're, makes real, but you're providing that outside of school. You see how this is just, and I do too. I'm just saying it's, it's that. But it shows that if a school could come, if, if, if that happened outside of school. And of course they have all day to do that. Times of seeing a kid for an hour. Think about if right. the school figured out their MTSS systems and structures, had the right materials and gave kids the practice. Wouldn't we not? continue having these conversations over and over again. That's my question. Why does everything take so much time? Why are we fighting so hard for something that we all know now is right? Like, well, I think because we're not why? following the research, because we're taking pieces of it. And, and MTSS, an effective MTSS system, is very aligned to research and, and is done in a specific way. So I want to share a resource that I recently came upon in I'm in the Mount St. Joseph's graduate program. And um, Amy Murdoch, who's the, the founder of that Amy. program. Yeah. yeah, she and her team, and I don't remember the other author, created this tool called the LAP, L-A-P-G, um, Literacy Assessment Something Guide. And it's basically a tier one, tier two, and tier three um, checklist. And, and I can't tell you how amazing it is. Judy, you should take a look at it because it, can you share it with me? I email? will. Yes, I will email it to you. I'll, e I don't, I'll email it to both of you, but it's, it's that implementation science piece. It's, and I heard you guys with the F word, it's the fidelity piece, <laughs> right? Um, it's making sure that your, your, your fidelity driven in systems and in instruction and that fidelity driven piece, like for, for your structured literacy, it's not just word reading. It's it's also oral language. It's vocabulary. It's read aloud structures. Like making, because kids we, with that ladder of reading that Nancy, you know, that I use all the time just to describe things to parents, um, kids need structured literacy, a certain percentage of kids, right? And that means for my oldest child, it really was in writing. Like he needed explicit instruction at the sentence level. He needed, and not because he didn't have the verbal skills, but because he just had to have that practice and that instruction. And that, I think, knowing that that has to happen across all tiers and the leadership has to be on board and understand it. It can't be an absent leader. I mean, Angie Hamlin, who's, do you know Angie Faith? Who, yes. who I think she was in Missouri when she did this whole turnaround and she had worked with, um, 
Patty Montgomery, who's at Schools Cubed, who who came in and helped her, where they they literally transitioned their entire uh, 95% free and reduced lunch, very transient population, by really sticking to being fidelity driven across all tiers. And in every, you know, you can't have MTSS without progress monitoring. Mm-hmm. Right right. Cannot. Like, and you cannot have MTSS without flexibly moving your groups based exactly. on that progress monitoring. Exactly. Um, and you can't have MTSS with FMP. Sorry. Pardon. No, <laughs> you know, I really hope. But you, Judy, you didn't come in clearly. Speak up again. You know, it's it's hard when you're like working after you, you know, benchmark kids, which, which is what most teachers will be doing now because uh, benchmarking is open in uh, New York City and all over, you know, the country right now. It's very hard when you get that data. You spend time with teachers grouping those kids, and then you pray after that they're seeing those kids that are in those groups and providing those kids those tools. It's like sometimes it's like strange, like like you want to believe that the teachers are using it and you hope that they are, but you're not you're kind of not sure. And it's like it seems like it's like a no brainer. Just use that data. It's there for a reason. And and it's like, how do you get? to motivate people to realize how important, you know, that screener data is in, you know, driving our instruction. You know, I think sometimes like they'll work on like the comprehension skills, which yeah, it's great, but isn't it really important in K to two to really, really prioritize teaching kids how to learn to read rather than working (laughs) on uh, theme and central idea and main idea. I mean, that's important too. Yes. Knowledge building is important, but like, let's get our priorities right. The foundational well, is so important for the young ones. Well, and the knowledge building is and 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 oral language and compre- like language comprehension development really at that point in time can be happening with with structured literacy routines in the classroom that are right. are no, known to the students and are the same each day. That there has to be a clear scope and sequence, which is why curricula are important. Right, because it's hard to do that as an educator. How do I plan out all my vocabulary words? How do I know that I'm hitting tier tier two vocabulary? You know, how how do I keep continue to to, to do that? Um, but I think that um, it's confusing. We, I only know what I know because I've been thinking about this for ten years. While my seven year, you know, like really, I mean, I've been trying to figure it out as much as I can. Data is so helpful. Exactly. It's the, it is the the particularly for the word reading piece. I wish it was as easy with comprehension to to intervene. It's it's complex. We need our SLPs in there. We have a disconnect at the school level with SLPs who say we don't work on literacy. Um, you know, language providers. Yeah. I mean, we have again our systems. What we see because we've had families go to due process. We've had all sorts of things. What we see is the systems again support the adults. Mm-hmm. And even the systems, even a due process hearing officer will often not care if evidence-based practices are used, mm-hmm. if it looks good on paper. Oh, 100%. I mean, you know, and they don't know data. Like that. Can you elaborate on that? Can you just explain that a little bit um, more? What, what yeah. You just so, so if there's an IEP that has been generated and there are progress, you know, quarterly progress monitoring reports for a kid with an IEP. 
It doesn't matter what data they're using. Like you can have, we've had a case where an expert comes in, like a, a real expert, I'm not going to say their name, talks about it. And you can still tell from the questions the hearing officer is asking that they have no idea. And that, <laughs> hey, even though the kid wasn't screened, like, and, and, and I'm, you know, like, even though they're not making progress in, in comprehension, in, in writing, hey, like that, that graph on that paper went this way. It doesn't matter what the graph is. Um, and F&P is often one of those tools right. used in these hearings. Um, and so um, I don't know the answer to that problem. It, it, it's top down, I think. Um, and, and Faith, some, we do need to talk about that article I sent you at some point, but that, that new article about um, just the impact of um, legislation, because there's yes. about that. Yes. But. Yeah, that, that could be another episode. <laughs> and we need experts on that, because it, yeah. it's a lot for me. Um, but I just hope that leaders catch on. It's the, when you meet a good, not a good leader, when you meet a leader who gets it mm-hmm. and who takes the time. Mm-hmm do aim pathways or letters or you know um then you see then you really see big change a hundred percent it's all about leadership kate i have one more question for you and then we'll see if judy has anything else or if i didn't ask you something but i went in you mentioned Shrey before mm-hmm. i actually um went into a CSE meeting with um, one of the parents uh, from his area. Mm-hmm. And I acted as an advocate. This was a while ago. Can you just and explain to the listeners what a CSE meeting is? So a committee on special education. Right. Meeting. And um, this school um, was shocked to see me come on a Zoom call on this meeting because they weren't used to parent advocates. And so it was amazing how different this meeting went because I was there. And clearly the parents did not have the knowledge to be able to ask the questions that I asked. And I just wanna know about that in terms of the work that you are doing are you training people to actually be advocates in neighborhoods where they really don't have advocates or cannot afford advocates? So that's the goal. Okay, <laughs> um, that's a good goal. What, what we're doing is we are advocating for those families. And um, if we had resources, our next step is to um, proceduralize the advocacy process. And um, what what we found is that you need an, an immense amount of knowledge to effectively advocate because you have to know the questions to ask. You have to know the BS. So you have <laughs> to know when uh, schools to special ed say, <laughs> um, when a special ed director says, Oh, we, we don't, we're not going to give a writing goal for Johnny. He doesn't need a writing goal. His writing's terrific. And you, and you know that they have some workshop product that the child has created um, that they're holding out, maybe holding out. Usually it's not even there, but you have to ask the questions. Well, can we do a, ba- you know, like, and so 
that is what we want to do. We need funding because it requires, you know, it re really requires, which we are doing, like take the steps down, even from a procedural perspective. How, how many days do you have to respond to this? Or how do you request an evaluation? An evaluation isn't good. This is one thing we have kind of solidified. How do you ask for an evaluation and make sure it's not CRAP? Um, you, you, know, you, you have we to have crap. <laughs> um, we, like, we call BS all the time. <laughs> you might not be able to say it on our show. Here's your, here's your but and I will say that one thing that happens that I that is not great in the work that we do is that because systems are not effective, we often have to get kids into special education. And so it's not our goal. Yeah. But you know that you can't get a kid anything unless they have protections. That's right. And that, and that so document. that's yeah. Right. And so um and there are, like I said, there are some great um, admin and, and people who will work with us and do the right thing because they have systems in place or are working towards it. Um, but in general, it's not until that kid gets a piece of paper that you can at least ensure that somebody is checking in on them. I mean, we can't always ensure that the right curriculum is happening, but that's the goal, Faith. And what I would say is that we are at capacity or more, but we can't say no. Right. Um, you know, and so, um, and I've been in, um, different districts myself personally as an advocate. And I, I will say that again, in those districts where they're not high achieving, things might happen like in a better way for those families. One of the things that happens, that's not talked about a lot is that kids are placed in other places, like in other schools, um, which can be good for the kid. But it's not a, it's not an effective practice for kids whose families can't, you know, get them there to the school. Even if there's busing, like they won't be able to pick them up. If there's not free lunch at the private school, even though it's the best instruction, like how do you work that out? I mean, we have yeah, logistics. It's very it's the kid I told you about today yeah. that one with the, the the four seven seven oral reading fluency. That's the conundrum we're in right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so um, I i mean, I think the advocacy piece is huge. It does. It does impact change. Yes, it's for sure. It yes. Does. Judy, any questions that you have that maybe we didn't talk about yet? No, I think uh, Kate covered it all. I just hope that whatever work she's doing, is it spreading out of PA? I mean, we Judy, we can we can easily share how to how to do the the early bird screening initiative that that's a it's really um not super expensive i mean you have to pay for the screener um and you get a lot of volunteers because all those parents who you're helping like parents of dyslexic kids or you know who who push for change right they want to help too um you know so i i mean we're we're happy to talk to whomever about it. I mean, that's the goal. Sounds like you're doing a really great job. I hope that, you know, it, it scales up. Me too. We need yes. money. If anyone has any money, we'll take it. <laughs> yeah, pass, pass it along this way. <laughs> so, Kate, um, anything we didn't cover that you want to add that we didn't ask or any last thoughts? I just think that um, the the 
importance of all strands of literacy and and remembering that we get we have just as many kids struggling on the language comprehension side. Um, you know, 50% of dyslexic kids have comorbid DLD. We know so much less about what to do in schools for that. Um, mm -hmm. And just, you know, um, the importance of oral language development. Teachers, please focus on that. Um, and um, thank you for all the work that everybody's doing. There are so many people pushing the, the needle, trying to push the needle. And Judy, you're in it every day. You, you know, the system stuff is really hard. Yeah, yeah. So everyone, I just want to mention, so this is um, Everyone Reads Pennsylvania. You could look them up. You could chat with Kate Mayer. I also want to say um, I have a website, ifonlybooks.com. So if you are interested in this advocacy work, I would recommend you visit that website. There are free resources there for a book club with questions that align with my book. And there's also a free handout there, Can You See Me, that parents can use um, to get districts to understand the track that kids will take if they don't get the proper help. So there's a lot there. So that's ifonlybooks.com. Judy, why don't you hit it and tell everyone how to get in touch with us? All right. Follow us on Facebook, The Literacy View, Real Teachers Letting Loose. Join our group. We're growing by the seconds. Follow us on Instagram, The Literacy View. Follow us on Twitter. Faith is at, uh, at High Five Literacy. Follow me at Boxner Damsky, right? <laughs> I think That's so. What I am. I'm tired, Faith. It's been a long day. It's okay. They'll find us. All right. So oh, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and subscribe to our Buzz Sprout. And also you could find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And the biggest thing that you could do for us is share our content, retweet us, reshare us on all media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, etc. Thank you. All Thank right, you. everyone. Thanks for um, listening and we will catch you next time. Thank you.